Welcome to the Ford Hastings podcast. If you want to be the best business, you need the best leaders, and simply, we bring you the best leaders. Ford Hastings is an executive search consultancy that helps you transform your high-growth business. If you'd like to know more about anything Ford Hastings, please get in touch with Will at whastings at fordhastings.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Jan Ward, Chief Exec of Cora Firm, uh, also CB for Services to Businesses in 2015, NatWest Businesswoman of the Year 2009, and IOD and Southeast, Southeast Global Director of the Year 2014. Lovely to have you on, Jan. Good, yeah, good to be here. Thank you for asking me. There, no problem at all. I'm going to jump straight in and ask you about how you started life in business mm-hmm. um, and, and engineering and how you went about setting up Corotherm. So please okay. go ahead. So we're going right back to, to the very beginning. The, now, from the womb. That <laughs> <laughs> could take us some time. Um, I, my very first sort of venture into business was when I'd, um, I'd had my first son, my first child, and I had a number of jobs, and they were all sort of dead-end jobs, and I didn't have any qualifications then either because I'd left school early. Um, and I, I, we had this idea, my, my friend and I had an idea to open up a sandwich shop, okay? And this was very, very original at the time. This was in 1976, and there was no such thing as a, as a sandwich shop then. You, you could buy bread and cheese and things and make a sandwich at home, but you couldn't buy a made sandwich on, on the street. But we'd seen these. Um, a friend of ours had brought back some photographs from the States and sandwich shops, delis in New York, were common. So we decided we were going to do this, this sandwich shop. So we hired this place and bought a few bits and pieces to put in it. Um, and that was the very first venture that we had. Um, it went okay for a little while, but we were so naive. I mean, I was, what, 18, I suppose, something like that. We had no idea what we were doing. What did your family say at the time? Um, they're not nothing, really, to be honest. They didn't really sort of, oh, off she goes, you know, she's going to do something. What she, you know, just take no notice of her. She'll get over it, you know, that sort of thing. She'll grow out of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was just a baby, wasn't I? I didn't know anything. And so, I mean, but it got me... Um, interested in how business works because it didn't work which it was never going to work the way that we'd set it up um but the idea that we had was to deliver sandwiches and that was the next step so you're just 40 years too early yeah exactly (laughs) well actually what ended up happening was there was a a number of companies started to compete with us so these pet these places started to and they had more money than we did we had no startup money we're just doing everything on the, on the hop and living on income and just turning the income over. Um, and these, these people started to copy us. So it, you, I'm not sure, but I, I'm almost sure that we were the first people in England ever to run around office buildings and shops selling sandwiches. I used to go down to the docks with all of the crusts. We used to make sausage sandwiches out of the crusts. And I used to go down to the docks and, and sell sandwiches to the to the guys on the on the oh, dock fantastic. side. Nobody had ever done anything like that. Certainly not in Southampton where we were or in Winchester where we used to, where we used to deliver. But then these these other people started coming in. So we t- we didn't take any notice of them. We didn't think that they you know that they would be as good as we were and you know all of this stuff. And um, they just had more money. They, they started proper startup capital, and we just couldn't keep up with them. And they just stole our business. 
So that was a good lesson learned. But it taught me how to keep accounts. It taught me how to handle money, how to deal with banks, the actual process of opening a company. In those days, you couldn't do anything online. There was no such thing as the internet then. Um, not in terms of the public mm -hmm. access to it. I think universities and things could use it, but not the public. And, um, you know, you had to go to an accountant and he'd give you paper forms. He'd fill it one out and off it went to company's house and you got registered. That, that hasn't changed much. <laughs> no, no, not really. No, they just do it electronically now. But the, the process is very, very similar. It's yeah. exactly the same. So basically, we had this we, we had this business, business for a while, which didn't work. So then I went back to getting dead-end jobs, still with no qualifications. And um, eventually, I decided that these dead-end jobs were no good because I wasn't earning hardly any money. And, you know, I wanted to do something more than just be in a shop or a betting shop or waiting tables and stuff like that. So I there was a, a government scheme at the time to train you and give you qualifications. And it was called the TOP scheme. Uh, there's been a number of schemes similar to that since. And I enrolled in that, and um, there were a number of different courses, and the one that I really liked the idea of was international trade, and it was the foundation course for the um, Institute of Export qualification, so you, this got you started. And I did that for, I think it took me about eight weeks altogether, and I was um, they, they gave you a small allowance every week and that sort of thing. And you got your little certificate, which would allow you then to go on and do the next stage. So I then went on, still doing background part-time jobs and things, and, and I took this the part one and part two through the uh, through local college. And so I was on my way to being qualified in international trade. And the reason I chose it was because I wanted to travel. And because okay. I wanted to travel, I thought, oh, I'll get a job in international trade. Somebody will pay for me to go and do this bit of travelling that I'd like to do. So that was the idea behind it. That's the only reason I did it. And from there, I then um, needed to get a job to be active in international trade to get my final qualification. So I was just scanning through the papers, and I just, I just wanted to take anything that was involved in international trade and being in Southampton, there's plenty of companies, freight forwarders, lots of businesses that were exporting because of a port. So I applied for a job and bizarrely got this job, which really surprised me. Um, I think, to be honest, they, they knew I was desperate <laughs> and I would have paid them to get the job, you know. So I think I, they got me really cheap. And um, I started working for this company, it was an American company that distributed um, stainless steel tube and they were based in Southampton in the port. And they gave me a job as an export assistant in their exporting department. So this started to help me then get my final um, exams and, and get my qualification. And it was only when I was working with them that I started to realise how much I enjoyed the technical side. I, I should have realised, because if I look back in my childhood, I used to be always taking things to pieces. I was always making stuff. And I used to steal the wheels off my sister's pram to make go-karts. Oh, really? You know, I was always in my dad's shed taking his tools and losing them. And, you know, I was always doing stuff like that when I was a little girl. So the clues were all there, <laughs> you know. And, it's, and it's easy to clean a dog's looking back, though, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. yes. With, with hindsight, it's simple to see. But also, I, I did not do domestic science. I mean, I love cooking, and, you know, I'm, I am a very domestic person. But I didn't need to learn to cook. I could already cook. Sure. And so I went to the headmaster and said, I don't want to do domestic science. Can I go downstairs with the guys? I want to do technical drawing. And this was before I left school. 
So the clues were there, but I never really sort of got picked up on them, really. So I got really interested in the mechanical side, and that's when I decided to take my engineering qualifications. Um, so I had, uh, so at the end of it all, I had an international trade qualification and a technical qualification. And I spent quite a lot of time in um, the metals manufacturing and distribution industry um, before I then started to think about setting up Corathan. So this American company paid for your technical qualification? Yes, they did. Was yeah. there any sort of stigma towards you being the oh, young yeah, lady? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I had to really convince everybody that you know I was capable of doing it. Mm. My career's advice when I was at school, by the way, was to go and be a hairdresser until I got married. That was my career's <laughs> advice. And if you you know if you think back, that was a sort of attitude. Yeah. But that was a long time ago. Yeah. I don't think it's as bad as that now. I mean, no. You do get that sometimes. Texas, get that in Texas. Right. <laughs> You're watching the TV. Yeah. And, and but um, I think it's much easier these days for people, that, uh, women and youngsters, to say they want to do something. But like certainly that. back then, and in and in an, a technical environment, yes, it must have been. Very difficult. It, it wasn't difficult because I really didn't take any notice of no. It, it, I think you can let it put you off. And I think the key is to think, well, you've got to have the attitude that this is not going to stop me. I'm not very good at taking no for an answer. And because of that, I didn't really pay any attention to the fact that people told me it wasn't possible. Because in my head, in my world, it, anything's possible. So saying no to me doesn't really work. <laughs> is that an attitude that you've just had since birth? Or I think it? so, yeah. I was, I, was, I, was, I was a child from hell. <laughs> my, my, how my mother managed to keep me alive was <laughs> just amazing. Were you the oh, destructive, oh, scandalous, oh, doing I everything? One, I was always the one in trouble at, at home. What's she done this time? Yeah, what she, but this is why they had the attitude with the company. It's into, oh, let her, just let her get on with it. You know, she'll fall on her face like she always does, you know. So they didn't really sort of give me a hard time over it because like, anybody that knows me well knows there's no point saying no to me. So I think that attitude is really important in business. If you allow people to give you negative feedback and you allow people's negative attitudes to affect the way you think, if you're sure, get on with it, do it. You know, the worst that can happen is that you fail. We just get up and start again. So, so that's really always been in my head. Um, and I spent probably altogether about 15 years working in various companies getting great experience, and, you know, I think that also is a really helpful thing to do. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to come straight out of university and start your own business without having worked in a business environment first. There's a lot to learn, and if you're keen and you show interest, you will learn a lot before you start your own company. So just on a tangent then, Jan, I mean, we're in an, we're in an age where kids are starting businesses before they even go to university yeah because they've got a great idea not necessarily yes. they can run a great business but yeah. they've got a great idea what if they if you were to chat to them now and had a minute with them and said hold fire just a moment and go and do some work at this business first yeah what sort of three or four things would you say to them to, to try and put them off from starting now and, and getting a bit of experience elsewhere because you will be you become reliant on other people's advice 
you, you're, it's very difficult for you to understand where your numbers are if you don't know how to run a set of accounts, if you don't know how to read a P&L, but also how a P&L gets created. Um, that, for me, was the, the top thing that I learned, I would say, of all the things that I learned to do. I was very lucky to have a very good, my last, the last employer, I had a very good um, FCO, and um, she was brilliant, and she taught me how a set of accounts should be run and how you deal with accountancy, with accountants and with banks. And that's a really, really valuable lesson when you want to start your own business. The administration side of it will come to you. I, I think you can you can set up a business up any way you like, really. There's no hard and fast way a business should be run. But the one thing you cannot get wrong is accounting. You have to know what cash you've got. You have to know whether you're making a profit. And you must close your accounts every month without fail. Sure. And that's from day one. I started in finance and accountancy, so I'm going to agree with you yes, wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, the, it's the biggest reason, I think, that a lot of people go wrong, because they don't understand the numbers, and they don't understand where the numbers are, and they wait too long to understand where the numbers are. By the time they get to the point they realise they're in trouble, yes. it's too late. Mm. So that was really, really important. But also, it taught me, taught me good practice, you know, things like credit control, cash, cash management, um, how to deal with people that was the other thing it told me because I became a manager through the through that period I learned how to deal with people how to recruit the right people so there's, there's a, a number of things that you'll learn when you're working in a business before you then go off and start your own so it's kind of get the experience um, whilst delivering value for someone else yeah. but while you're being paid for it yeah I mean if you've got an idea that is time sensitive that if you, you've got a window of opportunity to get that idea in place because of things that are happening in a particular market. I, I wouldn't say don't do it, but just be aware of the fact that you have to bring people in to advise you. And the thing that I was uncomfortable about was not being able to judge the type of advice I was being given, being reliant on somebody else telling me, this is how you should do it, or this is what you should be doing. And that's, that's always a bit risky, especially if they're not in your business on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. So for me, that's one of the things that you should always try to do is to know enough about something to make a judgment about the type of advice you're being given. That's an interesting comment, actually. We had uh, Mike Lander on the podcast recently, who is a non-executive director and runs has uh, worked in business transformation, built and sold yep. a couple of companies. Mm -hmm. And I was asking him about good business practice, and he said something, something like, don't outsource something you don't understand yet. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest problems that you have with that at the moment is um, tech. It's because you can't understand it unless you're a specialist. So it, it, you are reliant, actually, mm. in those circumstances, and you do have to take that particular advice because unless you understand the market and you know which tools to use, which, which um, databases to use, for example, and which reporting systems and accountancy systems and all of the other things that you need which apps are you going to use, you, you, to a certain extent you are relying on the IT specialists for that. It's a, it, it is a bit, a bit of a difficult one to be completely independent on. Sure, but I guess you can try and get your head around it conceptually at least. Can't exactly. You? Yeah. I think the key to it is to scope out what you actually really need it to do. Don't worry about the bells and whistles. You know, don't, don't start going down the road of making it do all these other fancy things that you don't really need. And it's, oh, that's a good idea. That attitude of, oh, yes, that would be helpful, you know. 
just what do we actually want it to do? Just the basics. Yeah. And then when you've got your head around that bit, you know, you can you can move on. I think that's actually really good advice for for releasing a new product as well. Right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From yeah. from the you know from the customer's point of view, what what's the minimum thing it needs to do? Yes. Yeah. And let's not predict all of the features it might need in the future. That's an engineering thing. Right. If you let engineers tinker with a product, and I've seen this happen many a time as a non-exec with companies that have got a fantastic idea for a product but just won't leave it alone. You know, they do a little bit of value engineering, a little bit of value engineering, with no idea of how they're actually going to mass manufacture this product. And then they start thinking about, oh, well, we could make it do this and we could make it do that. And they spend forever developing a product and never getting it to market. And never get, never get any feedback from, from no. potential customers, no, etc. because they think this is a great idea and because they, they can make it do these things, then they feel they have to make it do these sure. things. Sure. I'm going to uh, come back to that actually a bit later because it's mm-hmm. quite interesting. Um, so, so you spent a number of years working for a few companies, yep. learning the facets of business, particularly yep. credit control, finance, mm-hmm. how to run a P&L, and the people side of things yes. that you touched on. What What was the sort of catalyst then such that you considered setting up your own business, working with other people, and what gave you the courage, I guess, to, to do that as well at that time? Um, well, it didn't really seem like anything that was particularly courageous at the time, to be honest. Um, I must admit, I did do it with no money, but it never occurred to me for one minute that it wouldn't be successful. I was staying in an industry that I knew, so I wasn't trying to do something I'd never done before. Uh, previous to opening Corotherm, I'd been, I suppose you could call it headhunted, but I'd been asked to go to companies and help them increase their exports. So I'd spent quite a lot of time setting up businesses and setting up departments within bigger companies to increase their export output. So the majority of the, your working years did stay within the export side? Of yes, I've always, wanted, I've always wanted to do international trade, always loved it, and I still do. It's very, I think, very, very important you know, for a business to have that wider scope of customer base. But also I think it's important for the country that we, that we, that we export. So it's always been something that I've been very much in favour of and very enthusiastic about. So when I started Corotherm, the, the business that we were going to do, I'd done this already for other people. I'd already set up systems. I'd set up companies. I'd approach customers. So I'd, I'd already done it with a lot more resource behind me, admittedly. But what? So what was the moment in time that made you think, I want to set this up? We had um, the team... That is, that is now my board and shareholders, fellow shareholders, they were my management team in a, in a company that we worked for that got themselves into very serious financial difficulty. And when we realised that it was unlikely that the company was going to survive, we decided, well, I decided, I'm going to go off and do this on my own, guys, because I've done this five times for other people now. I'm going to do it for myself. And I sort of they were the team that I wanted, and I said, "Look, you know, I can't pay you, but would you, would you come and work with me, and I'll give you some shares in the business?" So that's really how it started. They didn't come for probably the first six to eight months, I think it was, before they actually came on board. So I, I was working on my own at the beginning in the bedroom, actually, with a new baby. Oh wow! In a carry cart under the desk. Excellent. <laughs> um, and and. And I, I just sort of got it, got it up and running, got it started. And once we had the first few orders coming through, I was confident that 
we were going to be able to sure. take it where we needed to. So for the uh, listeners, what does Corathon do? We su- and how did you start oh, with no money down? Right, okay. We supply very sophisticated metals to the oil and gas and petrochemical industry. And the metals that we supply are used to fabricate critical equipment in the process plants. So it's a very, um, it's metal, but it's very high tech metal. And it's, it's, it's stuff that performs at very, very high temperatures, very corrosion resistant. Um, and it, it's something that you do have to have some knowledge, some engineering knowledge to do. But it's something that I've been doing for many years before then anyway. Um, and the way that I started the business is I sold my car. Um, and because I was based at home, I didn't have to pay rent or anything like that. And I talked a friend of mine into letting me have an office in a derelict building that he was renovating. So basically, I was in this, this derelict building oh, wow. at the beginning. Um, but I didn't want to have a home address as the company address. So I, I based the office. But I was at home most of the time at the beginning, just sort of operating out of a desk in the bedroom. And then um, I went to the bank. And this particular bank, I knew this this um, bank and I knew the bank manager through the Chamber of Commerce because at that time I was on the board of the Chamber. I was that was that was that was fun as a woman too because I was the first woman <laughs> who, who was the, on, on the board of that particular chamber. So and again so just on a tangent how what was the sort of barriers to, to join in there because I'm, I'm assuming it was probably higher than some other industries much like engineering. Well I think that the the chamber at the time was very, very old-fashioned. When I, when I joined the board, I joined the board through default because I became involved in the International Business Club within Southampton, and, the, and I was on, on the committee for that, and that was sponsored by the Chamber. So I was working. I'd been in the Chamber for years and years and years. And I, he retired, the chair t- retired, and they asked me to take over the chair. Well, the chairs of all the committees of the Chamber have to also join the board. So they got me by default, and I was the first woman that any of them had ever sat on the board with. And not only was I a woman, but I was quite young at the time as well. So I was early 30s, I think, something like that. So and most of them were over 60 and retired. So, um, and our, our chairman at the time was a, a gentleman, lovely man, called Commander Peter Beebe. And he was surrounded by his chums oh, lovely. on this board. So I came as a bit of a bit of a shock, I think. <laughs> but it was good fun. It was really good fun. But because of my involvement in the chamber and the International Business Club and the networking that I'd done locally through that, I knew this bank manager. And so I basically got him out to lunch. You can't do this sort of thing these days. But basically sat down and said, look, if I give you a business plan and I can prove to you that I can make this business work and this is what my targets are, and here's three years forecasts, you know, what other paperwork would you need from me to give me an overdraft facility? And he said, okay, well, just give me the business plan. Let me see what you've got in the business plan. And I I put together a a business plan, which I've never done before. Um, And they gave me a £25,000 overdraft. Okay. And then I went around to the suppliers who, again, I'd been dealing with for some years. And I basically said to them, look, guys, how would you feel about giving this tiny little new company some credit, you know, 30, 60 days of credit? Again, something that you would really struggle to do these days. Um, and because these people knew me and they knew me from my past history, um, they were prepared to give me a, a hand and take a, take a risk, which I think most companies these days would really struggle with that, to be honest. Mm. 
So that's really how I got it started with nothing in my pocket. So you were levering the relationships you'd built up over a, Basically, a yes. number of years? Yes, yeah. Had I not had that previous experience, I still could have done it, but it would have been much slower and much, much harder. Yeah. And I would have probably got gotten turned down more often than not than accepted, I think. And the customer base? The customer base I already knew. My focus was the Middle East because that was my specialist area and it was the reason why I was asked to join other companies in the past is because I have specialist knowledge of the Middle East. So were you travelling to the Middle East? Yes, yeah. And I guess the generalisation that would come in my mind would be that it would be very difficult as a lady at that time to work in the Middle East. Was that, was that the case? Or no, not? no, it's not. No, no, I, it, I, I never really hit any barriers whatsoever. And you, you, know, you have to understand the culture and you have to understand how to behave and you have to understand where your limits are in terms of what you can and cannot ask for and what you're allowed to do. But as long as you stay within the comfort zone of those people that you're dealing with, there isn't a problem. It was, in fact, I find it harder now than I did then. Why is that? Because there are so many expats running the businesses out there now. Whereas when I used to first go there, you would be dealing with local people and they were the senior people within those companies. Most of those, most of them are retired now. Um, and they were older people. So they were respected people within their, their community. And so if you had their respect and you knew them, um, that was a really, really good recommendation for you to go and talk to other people. But also they were very old fashioned. So they were very gentlemanly and you were a visitor. So within Arab culture, you know, if you're a visitor, you have to be treated as a special guest. And so I was very, very well treated when I used to go out there. You don't get that quite so much now because, um, as I say, there's a lot of expats running the businesses, but they've become very westernized now. So you turn up at Dubai Airport, you turn up at Riyadh Airport, and you could be anywhere. But in those days, it's very different. Sure. So so back then, you, you were saying in order to navigate the relationships, you just respect the culture and, yes, and the ways yeah. and the norms yes. of the place that you're in. Yes, understand what what their culture is, what their what where you sit in that system. And also that those years ago, they were they were more respectful as a culture because they hadn't they hadn't had their culture changed somewhat no. by other communities yes yeah there was a very old-fashioned traditional arab culture there so there was almost a, an explicit code of conduct that yeah. if you adhered to everything went swimmingly yes yeah and you were accepted um as i've said before i, I don't necessarily think that if i was an um if i was an arab lady and I'd, i was a local lady that i would have had the same um sort of freedom given to me but because i was a european and i was a visitor mm. then i am an honored guest mm. so you get treated completely differently so being a visitor was actually helpful it was yes absolutely and, <laughs> and i stood out because i was a lady yes. so and i was an engineer and the middle east at the time was booming it was it was the obvious place to go because no one else went there there were very very few companies that operating in the middle east doing what we were doing and um, I, I made it my business to specialise in the Middle East because it was a niche area that I could be known for. And it was a niche area that you could develop that other people really shied away from. So how did you go about developing Coratherm from the, the derelict office with the <laughs> management team that are doing it for sweat equity and buying yeah. into vision yeah. to... The, I mean, again, and please tell the listeners where it is today, but to the global sort of yes, reach that I mean, it has today. Yeah, we've, we've got offices in the Far East and Australia, um, so Korea and China. We've got uh, three offices in, in um, India, 
We've got two offices on European mainland, um, and we've got four offices in the Middle East now. We did have um, a facility in the US, which we franchised, in fact. But when the oil price dropped, we had to pull out of that because we just couldn't compete with the local the local manufacturers and stuff. So we did we did at one time have a, have a US office as well. And um, how many staff is that roughly? Um, it varies really, depending on the oil price. Right. <laughs> it comes up, it goes up and down, but not very much. At the moment, I think we're fifty now. And so, so can you give us a little bit of an explanation regarding the journey you took? You know, mm-hmm. about hiring staff and uh, gaining other customers, and the journey, yeah. you know the, the how the vision maybe changed over the years. Did you have one? Did it kind of evolve itself? That sort of thing. Well, the vision for me really. The reason, the main reason, my main motivation for opening the company was, A, I wanted to be independent. I I didn't want to be dependent on other people for making decisions for me. And um, Is that what you struggled with? Did you struggle with that at all over the sort of preceding 15 years? I had to an extent, um, not very often, Mm. but there were times when decisions had been made by people that didn't understand what the job was. And they were putting barriers in the way, not knowing me and deliberately, but because they didn't understand, they were remote from what I was doing. And it put huge barriers in the way of me trying to do what I needed to do to get the work, to get the business. So I and I used to kick against that and that used to cause trouble. Um, and but it was never it was never so serious that it could be solved, let's put it that way. Mm. Um, so when I when I got started, that was the main the main thing. Is I wanted my independence, and I wanted to live or die by my own decisions, not other people's. But then the other thing that I really wanted to do is I'd been made in some of my managerial positions. I'd been made to do things to staff that I really disagreed with, that I really did not like, and I didn't think were fair. Is that to do with firing? Etc.? Hiring and firing, making people work different locations and hours and just basically not treating people very well okay um and so i one one of the big things for me the big motivation for me is i wanted to have a company that people liked working for that people enjoyed coming to work and not every day i do realize that you you know there are days when you don't want to be there but i wanted to, to get to bring together people that enjoyed the work and that we were a really good employer that people wanted to work for. That was one of the main motivations for me. And when I was recruiting, I was looking more at the person as a person, their personality, what they might be capable of, not necessarily what they could do now. So some of them came with quite good qualifications. Others came, you know, with no qualifications at all and no experience in business either. And is that is that a mantra you'd stick by today? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I would always be more interested in the person and what their capabilities are what what do they want you know what what's their desire where do they want to be where do they want to go how can I help them get where they want to be and achieve what they want to achieve and and that was that's always been the way that I've worked so I don't really pay much attention to what they've actually done in the past I'm much more interested in what they're looking to do and where I think their capabilities are are you looking for a particular value set as well in those people um I don't know if I've actually ever defined the the values but yes I must be I think I must be I think you have to be very honest one of the things I dislike intensely in our industry is that you will get a lot of people that will not tell the customer the truth 
they won't be honest with the customer when things go wrong. Um, they don't give feedback to the customer, don't support customers when things are going wrong. Um, and they do the same the other way with, with, with suppliers. So I, I really disagree with that. I think that is very, very bad for you. Um, I think the other thing that I, I like is I, I'm looking for people that want to learn, that want to develop. But I do also understand that some people have a limitation to how much they want to develop. So you can only push somebody so far and they will get to a point where they're getting outside their comfort zone. And you've got to accept that. Because early on, I think in, in my career in past companies, I'd push people too hard because it never occurred to me that there were limitations to what they could do. Mm. And they were outside their comfort zone and I was pushing to make them go even further. Yeah. So I learned a good lesson there with a few people that I tried to make more senior and do things that actually they really weren't that interested in. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how did you... We'll go back to the derelict office. Yeah. How did you how did you go about growing the company? Was it sort of organic growth? Did you just spend hours and hours and hours trying to take business? You yep. know, just just talking to customers, sending out quotations, getting inquiries in, you know, marketing as such as it was at the time, you know, there was you know, it was quite difficult to mark you sort of at least there were faxes in those days. Right. So I could fax people and, you know, I had a, a whole contact list of people that I've dealt with over the years and I just resurrected all the contacts and once we started to get the money in, we could start then to invest and, and develop the business. So to start then, was it sort of good old-fashioned hustle and then yeah. really yeah. meeting as many people as you could? And, and reintroducing myself or introducing the company because the company that we left had failed and so there was a number of customers out there that needed material that we knew that this, this particular company had just disappeared and they had no way of actually fulfilling some of their requirements, especially from the Middle East. The customers in the Middle East especially really struggled because people didn't want to deal with them. So what was the... Um... What was the, what did the cash flow cycle look like when you were onboarding a new customer from time to onboarding to purchasing materials? To... Well, because we were doing a lot of Middle East work in those days, they didn't expect you to give them open account. So quite a lot of the time they were site LCs. So as long as you could get about 30 days out of your supplier, you could do a site LC, put your LC in, as long as you look after the documentation and make sure you get your LC in nice and clean, you get paid in time to pay the supplier. So we had a sort of cash flow that went up and down like a you know like a set of mountains. Really. Yeah, yeah. But the cash came in first. Yes. Importantly. Yeah. So. yeah. so because of the, the the terms and conditions that we we were able to get from them, and that's true in some cases still today that we still deal with customers on letters of credit. They don't. Not all of them like it, but some of them you have to. And and again, I guess on a tangent, but as an advisor, is the working capital cycle the the cash flow management something you would look at with companies, particularly in engineering? Is yes, it? yeah, and you always have to be aware of the amount of work in pro progress you're going to have, and that was always one of our issues, is, you know, how do I deal with the work in progress cycle, if you like, and we used to try to keep that as, as small as possible, as low as possible, but the investment early on um, didn't seem, it, it, looking back now, I don't remember any huge crises coming along that we had to solve, there were a couple of times I had to phone the bank and say, we're going to go over our facility, it's going to be for 10 days, is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. So off you go. Were there any, I mean, you've just answered the question, I guess, but were there any other sort of key challenges or was it quite quite smooth in terms of the growth that you had? Yeah, it was pretty much, it, yeah, especially in the early days. It was very, um, very steep at the beginning. Yeah. So how do you manage, again, I'm going to go back to cash flow, but if, you're, if it's all organic, 
must be must have been quite difficult to manage growth. It was. I know that sounds yes. counterintuitive, but obviously but it, it is. Yes, yeah, it, it, it is. So we were very careful about the jobs that we picked. We didn't try to overreach, and that was one of the things that I was very aware of. That you know we couldn't overreach ourselves because we wouldn't have been able to finance it. And then once we'd got some some um, history under our belt, I could then start to go and talk to the finance people in the banks yeah. and, and, and finance houses, trade finance and that type of thing, to help us to then start to grow those. And, and do you think that advice is applicable to anybody starting out? Pretty much, yes, yeah, absolutely. So. I think you not only can you overshoot yourself cash-wise, but you can't cope with the administration and you start to let customers down. And if you're in the early stages, you've got to be 110% reliable at the early stages because they're testing you now to see whether or not you can do the job. If you start to let people down because you've overstretched yourself and you don't have enough people in operations, for example, to, to carry out the job, then you are going to start letting customers down and you'll lose them. Were, were there any moments over the um, growth of the company where that happened to you and how did you... Yes, that. there was actually that we had to really scrabble very fast when um, South Pass came on in Iran. That was a massive, massive gas product project, sour, sour gas project, some huge field in the North Dome, and um, we were the only company that was supplying this particular equipment, and no one else was qualified to do it except us, and it just went crazy, absolute mad, madness. And it's at that point that we decided we needed a proper um, ERP system. We'd still been doing it with various bits of software and various processes which weren't necessarily linked to each other. What point in time was this, Jan? This must have been in 2003, I think. No, no, it wasn't. No, it was before that. It would have been around about 2000, I think, mm. something like that. And the, the field had been developed before that, but they'd hit the sour gas fields, and that needs specific types of equipment and, and materials. And that's where we came in. But because we were the only company qualified, they just hit us with everything. And this, this was phase one through to phase 27. You know, it was just crazy. And they were sending us um, requirements for 1,000-plus items in one purchase order, Trying to deal with that on Excel sheet is not fun. <laughs> really, it's not fun. So we decided that we needed some IT um, help. And at the time, there was nothing around that would have suited us. But fortunately, I knew a young chap who I'm still in good call, who we run their system now. And he developed and started his own business at 19 doing this, this software. And we became their beta customer. So that, that saved us, I've got to say. We, it was all very basic at the beginning, but it did the job to begin with, and it's now our complete system, and it's very sophisticated now. Brilliant. Excellent. And so you had an, okay, so an ERP hurdle to overcome with yes. growth, and then, you, yeah. and then you'd nip that in the bud. Um, what about actually upskilling yourself and your team as your company grew i mean i know you, you did you did it in previous companies for somebody else etc yeah but i guess the pressure and the stress that comes with doing it on your own is somewhat different um, because you have the skin in the game in that regard how, how did you go about it ensuring the development of your team members um during that company growth and yourself well we, we put in place you know appraisals and um, pdrs very early on 
when they weren't really fashionable at the time. I mean, I, they weren't even called that. I didn't even know that's what, the, what I was doing, to be honest. But we would sit down every six months or so and see where everybody had got to, how they were getting on. Um, the guys that were my co-directors were, you know, relatively young, quite a bit younger than me. And so I saw myself a little bit of as, as a mentor to bring them through. Um, they were technically qualified, but they, but they didn't have a lot of business experience. And so they were learning quite a lot on the, on, the, on the job, if you like. You know, they were having to learn as they went along. But um, we just put training programs in place so that people are in continuous development. And as I say, that's very common these days. But, it, but at the time, I mean, this was 1992, and I don't, think it was, I don't think it was that common. But it was obvious to me that because of what we did, not just because of the technical side, but because the operations is very, very complex for us, um, you have to have very, very good training. And, and I wanted to see people develop. It gave me, gave me great pleasure, still does give me great pleasure to see somebody developing themselves and moving on and, and becoming somebody that they never thought they could. There's two or three instances in the company now where I've got people that are working in jobs that if you'd have told them 10 years ago this is what they'd be doing, they'd have run away in panic <laughs> because they would never have thought that they could do this. But I knew that they could do it. So you've got to slowly get them there through this set of training and, and support, really. So what did you see in, in these people such that you thought they could become something else over a period of time? I think more than anything, willingness. Willingness to learn and the ability to learn um, and the ability to put the hard work in that it takes to do these things. I think that the, those three things combined are enough to make you want to help people. And it, they need to want it too. If they just want a nine-to-five job, we've got nine-to-five jobs. You know, you can come and do a nine-to-five job if that's what you want to do. But that's not really what I want to see people doing. I want to see them moving on. Mm. And I want to see them developing and, and improving and, and feeling and feeling valued and, feel, and, and having self-respect for themselves mm. because of what they've done. And how did you go about sort of instilling that confidence in them, perhaps? Or if you needed to, perhaps you didn't. But was The biggest thing for me is not to micromanage people. We would, we would give them a job and let them do the job and let them make mistakes. And don't be afraid of making mistakes. There's hundreds of people around you here. There are plenty of people around. We'll jump in and save you if you have a problem, but don't do nothing. Just get on with the job. Ask as many questions as you like. Do it as repetitively as, as you want to, but no one's going to stand over you and watch you. You're going to be treated like a grown-up now. I think that having that that sort of culture there makes a huge difference to how people can perform. Yes. Um, so I, I always joke with my friends, my old mentor used to say to me, get it 51% right. Yes. And, and that's progress. And I'll yeah. take the rap for any, any problems. Yeah. But I've also been in environments where, in SME consulting where the culture was just in, was terrible. It was, um, n- nobody was, nobody was brave enough to take any decision because there was some sort of booty culture somewhere in management yeah um and everything was documented and nobody would take action etc and uh, we put in place some things where people could make changes we, mm. we call it fix it limits you know if it costs less than x then do it and we'll yeah. review it and within a day not exaggerating within a day the, the attitude had changed yeah and people all of a sudden became yeah you know did so much more yeah um so i, I think mean, I, you know a good example of this is the person that runs the uk business now um he was the operations director and he is a director of the business and a shareholder but when i decided to go out to the middle east 
the last time I went out was and lived there for I was there for about five years this time. Um, when I decided I was we're going to go out and I'm going to really get this facility established, this is when all this work was going on with South Pass. Um, I needed to be there to build a team out there on, on, on site. We couldn't really manage everything from the UK anymore. It had to be there. So that's what I did. I went out there and got that all established. I, I basically said the day before I left, I said, oh, you're in charge now. I'm going by. And he, you know, he, he's now the MD. And was that from that day on, he was going to be the MD. Right. And I just I don't care what you do. Just get on with it. If you need to ask me questions, you know where I am. I'll come back every couple of months if you need me to to, to, to help. But basically, it's up to you. You're in charge now. Picked up a carrier bag and left. Come <laughs> So I have, two, I have I guess two questions there. What gave you the confidence to know that this chap was right ready? He had been working with me since he was 17, and he was, at the time, 30. So we'd been together and ready for a very long time. I'd known each other for a very long time. I'd known him since he was young. And I knew what he was capable of. He just didn't know that he was capable mm. of it. He, he had more doubts about himself than I did. Mm. So, And I had more ambition for him than I think he had for himself. Mm. Um, so once he, once he realised that, you know, he's not a disaster, and most of the things he was making decisions on, had he realised he was already doing them, sure, I was I was pushing them over to him long before then. Yeah. So you know he knew what he was doing. So you'd instigated the change over period beforehand. Yeah, I, I I I did it by stealth. Yeah. Before I left, so rather than sort of dumping in it, it, it all on him straight away, he'd already started to take responsibility for other things. And um, moving to the Middle East, mm-hmm. did you have to uproot a, a family as well? Oh no, it was just me and my husband just then. You and your husband. Yeah. Then. So it was yeah, it was nice and easy. Yeah. Um, and how, was it a big cultural adjustment? I mean, no, you've been I've been, there. I've been traveling that way for years. So it's just, um, it's just a very, very difficult um, place to live if you have interests that are outdoors. That that was always my problem there. The weather, you know, I'm a sailor. I'm a motorcyclist. I'm a cyclist. I'm a walker. I'm a gardener. And most of that stuff you can't really do there. So, you know, you, you sort of spend a lot of time swimming. <laughs> and, and, the, and, you know, it, the sea is warm. And warm salt water in the summer when it's 42 to 50, between 42 and 50 degrees is not pleasant. So no. even in the summer you don't swim. No. Because it's just not nice. And 50 degrees sounds intolerable yeah. to we, me. We bought huge numbers of books. We must have bought, oh, at least six or 700 books while Quirky. we were there. Because there was nothing to do. <laughs> but you, you became a fountain of knowledge. <laughs> well, I'd like to think so, but I think I've probably forgotten everything that I read while I was there. <laughs> I remember I was in Singapore once in a suit waiting for a taxi and it was 45 degrees yeah, and I stepped outside and within 15 seconds I was drenched. Yeah, it's horrible. It really, and, and it's very humid. Where we were, we were in the UAE and it's very humid there. So what would you say have been the main successes for Coratherm? To date, I would say now, if I look at where we are now, I think if again, it's very similar to the situation of you know, you take somebody and say in 10 years' time you'll be doing this. I don't think we ever imagined that we would be where we are now, so it's been exponential, but but it's but it's also been you know a step change each time. Whereas I think it would have been very dangerous if we'd have gone from there to there very, very quickly. It's taken a long time. It's been 26 years now. Um, and we've been through a number of iterations because of what happens in the oil and, oil and gas industry. It's very cyclical. And we've had disasters with 
the oil price going down. The last three or four years has been an absolute nightmare for us. Mm. But things have turned around and come back again, which we knew they would because we've done this two or three times already. So that side of it, you know, I think, yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure... Sort of, lo- I, I think I've lost my my thread here. <laughs> really, I mean, I I think I think now we're I think we're surprised if you ask us where you, you know we're surprised that we are where we are. Yeah. Did you? I guess over those twenty something years, did you have a, a, a sort of vision or mission or goal in mind that I know you said then you iterated on? So did you have sort of mini sort of three year? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. We've always, we've always, we're, we've, we follow the industry. Mm. We have no choice but to follow the industry. We've looked at other sectors. Um, we've looked at other materials. We've looked at, um, you know, other ways of doing things. But ultimately, the core of our business has remained the same. Yeah. Because that's what we know, and that's know what we do well. And where do you think you've succeeded where others maybe have failed over the years? Because let's say 20-something years is, means it's a very resilient company yeah. and you would have seen a lot of people come in and, and fail. Oh, yes, an awful lot. Um, I think it's because we are very, very careful with cash. Um, we don't overstretch ourselves and it's all about quality for us. We're in a very small sector, so we are, we are well known now. Um, you know, anybody in our sector knows who we are um and uh, you know I, I just think looking back we've always been trying to be very very careful with our customers and and we've we've got the same customers now that we had 26 years ago in some and we've got new customers obviously yeah but the core business certainly from um india the middle east and the far east has remained the same and then you've added on periphery customers. What's interesting now, though, for us is that we're seeing an awful lot more coming from the waste waste industry. There's so waste to energy um, and energy efficiency um, and propulsion efficiency, and that's really really interesting area for us now because that is a complete departure from where we would normally say our core business is. But the technology in it is really interesting too. What's and, interesting about the tech, huh? Well, because they're using these materials for applications that didn't exist before. So there's there's an awful lot to do to understand. We're talking to a company at the moment that are trying to do a very, very high, highly efficient engine for launching satellites. Um, and what they're hoping to create are reusable rockets, basically, to get these, these satellites up there. Which at the moment I don't think they are. Most of them aren't reusable. No, only Elon Musk's. <laughs> yes, yeah. So basically, this this company is working on this very very high tech engine, and we're talking to them about what commercially would work in terms of them doing um, uh, commercial manufacturing. Because it's all very well to do an R and D project mm. and develop this beautiful piece of equipment that's made out of gold and silver and platinum, but at the end of the day, no one's going to be able to buy it. That's mm. what you've got to make it from. Mm. So you've got to try and value engineer it so that it's actually repeatable and it's repeatable at a price. And so we're talking to them about what from our product range they would need to use and how that would work with what they're trying to achieve. So that's something that's really, really interesting. And just on a tangent, for the non-engineer, what do you mean by value engineering? And is that okay. applicable to okay. other industries? That, yes, <clears throat> All, every every company that makes a product needs to do value engineering. Um, and this is 
completely counterintuitive to the way that engineers' minds work because engineers' minds want to constantly improve a product and make it do more for less, which is great, but you might end up, and you quite often will end up, if you let them have their head with something that you can't sell to anyone because it what it does isn't necessary always, but also it's made out of things or the way that it's having to be manufactured because of you, your cleverness within it um, it means it's unaffordable and you can't repeat that manufacturing. So what you've got to do, once you've got your basic concept and you've proved the concept and you can do this, then you've got to look at how do you repeat this manufacture on a commercial basis that comes out in a with an affordable sale price. And so the value engineering that you do is you start to look at the materials. You look at what is absolutely necessary and what can be done differently, more cheaply, um, where you know you might change it's, it could be tiny little things like you'll change the diameter of something yep. so that you can buy a standard bit of kit yep. that will fit that diameter rather than having the diameter that you designed into it that actually is non-standard now you've got to have non-standard bits made that's the sort of thing that you do when you do value engineering and i, I guess when we were talking earlier regarding people creating new products um, and not getting out to market quickly and not getting feedback yeah. and building in features that perhaps they don't even know the customer wants. Mm. Do you think that's analogous to the engineer that's building in all of the features uh, into something? Yes, yeah. yeah. But I also think that you still need them to be doing that in the background because if you've got a very, very good product that's got um, you know IP, you're going to get copied. There's no question about that. Regardless of your IP cover, you're going to get copied. So what you have to have in your back pocket is Mark II, Mark III, Mark IV. And you make sure that your trade name is the one that everybody wants to buy. You're the Hoover. And you, you, you start with your basic product. And then in your back pocket, when somebody comes along with a copy and they may be able to do it cheaper, you come out with your new product and they've got to try and keep up with you. That's, it's interesting you say that because I, was, I can't remember who we had on. It might have been Mike Lander. Um, and we were talking about um, uh, building businesses. And I said to Mike, you had um, potentially, apologies if it wasn't Mike, <laughs> but I said to Mike, you had the Warren Buffett school of thinking, um, the investor, and he says build big business moats, so build, build protection around the business. And I guess a patent or something would be an example yes. of that. Um, and then you have, we mentioned Elon Musk, you have the Elon Musk's of this world that says the only thing that matters is the pace of innovation, mm. as in because people will, We'll copy. Yes, you just um, have to accept that. But also, when you when you do a patent, you're telling everybody how to do it. Right. All they've got to do is find a slightly novel way of doing the same thing, and they've beaten your patent. Because they have the blueprints. Yeah. 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 So you have to be really careful about how you do that. I prefer to work on trademarks and copyright and that type of thing, which I think is, is, is A, cheaper and easier to enforce, but also you're not explaining to the rest mm. of the world how you do what you're doing. I hadn't thought of that, actually. It's quite... <laughs> <laughs> See, have this field of copycat companies yeah. uh, just searching patents and yeah. thinking, how can we... Yeah, and all you've got to do is make that novel thing within that. And it could be achieving exactly the same thing at the end of it. But if they find a, novel, a novelty within that, that they can copy your process and just insert that into it, they've got a new patent. So do you think it is important to be constantly innovating in, in business? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and not just with the product. It's the, the way that you deal with the customer, the way that you operate, the way that you do your administration. I mean, I, I love all of the new 
ways that you can gather data and the reports that you can get. You can swamp yourself if you're not too careful and you can sort of spend an awful lot of time producing reports that actually don't tell you very much. Yeah. But that sort of thing is, is gold dust if you're trying to make decisions for the future. And um, have you sort of done that with Corafirm over the last few years? Is there, is, there, is there reporting that you have in place now that you didn't have before? And have you seen any meaningful impact on the business? With, with yes, we've, we've, we've put in place, because we've got busier, and one of the things I'm trying to do is to make us more efficient and, and to do more with the same amount or less if possible. Um, we've introduced a number of um, specific things on the operations side. Um, we, we're much better at gathering and reporting on the front end on the sales side now, but that's nowhere near as important as the operations side. And so we've introduced a number of different sort of apps and things that we use on the back of our ERP system that helps us with that. And why do you say it's not as important as the operations side? Well, the operations side is, is what makes the money mm. in the end, because the reality in my business, and yep. it's not necessarily the case for every type of business, but in our business, when the salesman hands that job over to the operations department to put in place, that's a little fairy tale. That's all that is. It's just a little thing, a little story in his head about how he thinks that job is going to go. The people he hands it to are the people that actually make that happen. Sure. And if they get something wrong, or if he's got something wrong that they've now got to put right to save the job, they're the people that really matter. And my ratio is generally two, at least two ops people to one salesman, because they're the people that will pick that job up and make it reality. I guess it's analogous to the tech world in a way where your requirements gather in and then, you know, you have what you think is the thing you need to build and then you go about building and it's like crikey, it's nothing like the yes. original spec. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and salesmen are, are notorious for having a little fantasy. Yeah. Oh, there'll of course be we can do it. Yes, yes, sir. Of course we can, dear customer. Yes, anything you want. A rocket that can tap dance. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> We've got one in stock now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You'd like to pick it up tomorrow? Yes, absolutely. You know, so it's all of these sort of things that salesmen are notorious for promising to a customer. Mm. Um, and you have to temper that with the fact that, you know, somebody's got to actually make that happen. Mm. Because the minute they pass that order on, they've forgotten about it. They're on to the next job. Yeah, absolutely. So I really uh, like the fact that you mentioned about having to innovate on internal processes and operations and processes, procedures, et cetera, as well, because I think when people, and innovation became a buzzword probably two or three years ago yeah. in particular, off the back of the lean startup stuff. And when people think of innovation, they think of this really shiny, uh, outrageous, eggheads in a room coming up with something really novel type of process that's yeah. innovation but actually it's it's, it's also process improvement in yeah, some novel absolutely. way um how I, I, and i guess the question i have is how do you foster a, a culture that allows people to go uh, hey jan i've had this improvement on the um credit control procedure it's a mm. novel way of doing it but what do you think about x y or z yeah um the way that we foster that in people, I think, is just the way that the company is run in as much as we don't have a hierarchical system. You know, we all work in the business together, and so we are approachable, um, and the people that need to make the decisions about that, you know, you're never going to come into um, a meeting or you're never going to come into an office with somebody and say, what about this? Do you think this is a good idea? 
and you'll be dismissed or made to feel that that's a stupid idea. Everything is always considered and we always make sure that everybody's aware of the fact that we want to hear from them because they're the guys that are doing the job. They're the ones that know what's going on on a day-to-day basis because they're the ones that are on the ground doing it. So they're the best people to say what would be good, mm. what would work, what wouldn't work. And, and when you say you foster that, is that is that written down or is it kind of baked into the way the company's run? I think, it's just, it... I think it's just part of our culture, to be honest. I don't think I, I think if you write it down, it sort of loses it loses any meaning really because you know it's a bit like giving somebody an employee handbook. You can't explain. To somebody in an employee handbook, how to be a decent person? You know, it's, it, it, it comes with the way that you treat each other by leading by example and things like that. And I guess that also places value on how you hire, right? As well, yes. Because like, I, I have chats with people about culture and shaping company culture, etc. As in just personal chats, and I often rebut and say it's really more fundamental who you hire in the first place than yeah. trying to change something that's already existing. Surely, right? If you have a bad actor in a company, it's very hard to train that out of them if yes. that's who they are inherently. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. If you've got somebody that's inherently difficult as a person or who is, you know, a bad-tempered person or impatient or, or whatever, um, that comes out really quickly. Mm. And, you know, you've got to decide whether or not that's, um, that person's valuable enough for that to remain. Um, generally, though, I think it's just the way that you interact with the person when you're talking to them. When you're interviewing someone, you'll get to know. If you spend long enough at it, you know, you can't really find out within an hour. You've got to spend some time on this. And then you'll start to get to know what type of person they really are. Because after an hour, you've broken them down a little bit. Mm. And the barriers come down and they start to really talk about themselves and become the person they really are. Mm. In the first hour, I think they can keep up quite a good front. And they can present themselves in any sort of way that, that they want to. and But eventually it comes out the sort of person that they are. And what you tend to do, I think what people, a lot of people tend to do, is they will recruit their own likeness. And I will do the exact opposite. I don't want people that are like me. I want people that can do things I can't do. And I don't want the same personalities. Because yeah. if, you've, if you've got that, you're going to get conflicts, no you, question. You're absolutely right as well. And Just psychologically, we like people that are like us. Yes. And so you have to deliberately say to yourself, I'm, you know, am I, am I hiring in my own image? Am I yes. just liking qualities that I think I have myself? Yeah. Um, so it's actually, it's actually a tough skill. It is. Um, and I think you have to have plenty of self-confidence too because – a lot of people limit their businesses by recruiting people that they think aren't as good as they are. And so that you, you, you limit yourself by your recruitment to a certain level and you won't recruit above yourself. Yeah. Whereas I'm the exact opposite. I want anybody that's much better at things than I am. And I want people that are better qualified than I am, you know, because they are the ones that make me look good. <laughs> that's the point. You I know? think, um, to, again, Warren Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, said I hire, I hire people much smarter than me and I let them get on with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. That's but the again, whole point. But again, it's... Um, it goes contrary to the ego to, to do that. It's a tough thing to do. You it have is. to park your ego at the door and say, you okay, do. this person is better at me and A, B and C, and that's what I need. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's that's a that's a real difficult one for people to be – you've got to be self-aware yeah. to be able to do that. And, again, um, in actually do it in practice. It's easy for me to say on a podcast that's what you need to do. It's a lot harder for me in practice to do it. It is. Yeah, it is. It's always been easy for me because I've never really felt that, 
you know, I can do everything. I can do anything I put my mind to. I don't feel that I'm, I'm restrained by the fact that I don't have knowledge of everything. But I don't ever believe that there isn't a way of achieving something if I've set my mind on it. Um, so I've always had this opinion that, you know, there's lots of people out there that can do things much better than I can. What I need to do is get them together so that they can achieve it. Mm. And so I've always had that attitude. So it's not something that I've had to alter in the way that I think. Is that something you've had to help coach or train in other people that are higher up in the organisation? Yes. How yeah, do you go about doing that? Um, just talking to them, really. Just sitting down and talking to them on a regular basis and, and, and making sure that they're aware. It's, it's trying to help people to be self-aware. Mm. I don't think there's anything else that you can do. Some people will stubbornly stay there and you will not get them to change that attitude. They are insecure and they are not ever going to want to have people around them that are better at something than mm. they are. And they will want to micromanage those people. Nine times out of ten, they're the ones that have to go. Because if you can't get them to accept that there are limitations to what they are capable of and there are other people that have got skills they haven't, then you're always going to be limited by that person. So there have been a few instances, not many, I must admit, over the years, but there's been a few where I've just said, look, you know, this is not going to work for either of us. Okay. Um, again, it's... it's it's probably a strong leadership trait, actually, to be able to say at a point in time, enough is enough. Yes. Um, even if I like you as an individual, mm. as a, a functioning part of the business, it's not going to... It's not working. Yeah. yeah, you've got to be pretty tough with that. Mm. Um, you mentioned self-awareness a few times in, in over the course of the podcast. Um, it's a nice segue for me. Um, as I personally think having cultivating self-awareness is a, is a key leadership trait. Mm. And, and when I say that, I mean, in order to lead oneself, you have to be self-aware. Yes. So you have yeah. to start there before you can. Yeah. And that's just my sort of personal thoughts on it. Um, growing a business from scratch to 50 people, in my mind, must require some sort of leadership trait or, or skills, etc. What, what are your thoughts on the role of leadership in business and then if you think it's important, et cetera, what, what actually, how would you define leadership personally? Um, for me, it's lead by example. So you don't ask people to do things that you wouldn't do yourself. Um, you don't, you, I, I don't like having a hierarchical system. So, you know, everybody gets treated. You're working with people. They're not working for you. They are working with you and they are all your team and you are a proper team. Um, and, Making, making sure that people are aware that that team is, you're reliant on each other. It's almost like being in the army to a certain extent, mm. relying on each other to, to support each other, to do the things that each of those functions need. And so for me, it's, it's all about trying to get people, A, to um, be on board. You know, I, I don't like the idea of imposing things on people. I'd much rather they came with me Quite often, I've come up with some sort of plan or idea, and everybody sort of looks at me sideways as if I'm nuts. Oh, got a minute, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then eventually I talk them round, you know, and I get that lovely moment when they're all sat around the, the, the table and everybody's had their say, and I've sort of answered all the questions and put forward all the things that I think, yes, that could happen, but this is what we could do, and, you know try to get them all to give me as many downside scenarios as possible so that you can you can address all of those and, and let people be honest about their doubts and their worries and try to put all of that at rest. But at some point, 
their heads will go down and they'll just go, right, okay, all right, okay, I give in. And that's the point at which you know that you've, you've got them persuaded, you know. And they may not necessarily want to do it, but once you get going, mm. it's, you know, it, it's fine. Mm. Um, but you, you have to be able to persuade people to come along with you because you can't do it on your own. If you've got an idea about something that you need to, the company to do or something you want the company to achieve, everybody's got to be on board with that. And I wouldn't not do something because we have dissenters. Generally, the way that I've managed that is when you've got a group of people that are with you, they understand what you're trying to do, and they agree with what you're trying to do. And the, the, the sort of laggers that are not too sure about this eventually come round because, you know, it works. If it goes wrong, then the best thing you can do is say, guys, I was an idiot. I thought it would work. It didn't. We tried it. Let's let's drop it now. So it's important for you to hold your hands up. In Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you can never, don't ever present yourself as being infallible because yeah. that's really, really big mistake. I'm like the, the captain of the Titanic who, yes. who yeah. left the ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it sounds to me like it, Leadership for you is a very collaborative exercise, yes, uh, yes, rather than you said hierarchical. Yeah, and you've mentioned that before. Yeah, well. it, it's just not not something I, I would enjoy. I've suffered under that situation before, and I know how awful it can be and how demotivating it is. So, I try wherever possible to bring people along. There are times, admittedly, when I will have to make a decision about something, and there are going to be people that won't like that decision. Um, but I've done everything I possibly can to persuade them and to explain to them why it's necessary. Um, even if it's just a small thing, I always try to make sure that people understand where I'm coming from. I don't just want to say, do that, or yeah. this is how it's going to be, without the explanation yeah. that goes behind it. So there's an education piece there as well. Absolutely, yeah. This absolutely. is what I think and this is why, rather yes. than do as I say. Yes, yeah. that's a really, really bad thing to say. And, I, you know, it's, it's the same as bringing up a child. There's no point in saying to a child, you do this because I tell you to. That's, that's, that's madness because they're not paying attention. You've got to explain where you can, why it's necessary. And have there been any sort of quote-unquote leaders, past or present, that, that you look up to or have learned from and why, either in business or outside of business? There's never been one particular person that I would say has been, you know, a role model for me, but there's been a number of people that I've admired for certain things. Everybody's a flawed character. You know, mm. there's no one perfect in this world. And so you can't you, you can't idolise somebody because ultimately they're always going to let you down one way or another because they're just not perfect. They never will be. But there have been a number of people over the years that I've worked with in the past who I look up to and I do admire certain things that they're able to do, especially if they're things that I'm not very good at. Can you give any examples? Um, well, the, probably one of the most influential people for me um, was um, was the person that I worked for uh, in the American company that I worked for at, at the beginning. Um, and he was an ex-soldier, and he taught me how to get people to work together as a team. He was really good at that. He, he was, oh, he was absolute nightmare in any other, every other way. <laughs> because he was, you know, he was ex-army, and he'd not been in business before, but he knew 
how to deal with people and how to get teams working together. And he was very, very good at that. And I learned a huge amount from him. Do you remember a couple of those lessons? Um, I think the main one was um, to explain yourself, to sit down with your team and explain um, the communication of your ideas or what's needed or just bringing people together and explaining to them what you're doing and why. Mm. I think that was that was one of the main things that he taught me how to do, um, and I, I I didn't he didn't really explicitly explicitly teach me, but I watched the way that yeah. he did things and I could see that that's how it worked. I I when I was younger especially used to get very fiery about things going wrong with my jobs, um, and we would get situations where I, mean, I always remember at one specific time when I had a letter of credit and I'd had. I don't know, £150,000 worth of material ready to go. And there was one item of stock that I needed and somebody had taken it and shipped it to a UK customer. And here I am with £150,000 worth of material that I couldn't invoice to someone. Um, and I just completely lost it. And Peter Blessing came and got me, pulled me out, and he went in and did the diplomatic thing, calmed everything down and got it all sorted out. But because I was so angry, I just went in there and blew up. And I, I learned a really good lesson there to, to how to handle that type of conflict. Yeah. So you, so you learned the diplomacy side from him as well yes, in that regard. Yeah. Uh, through example. Yes. Um, again, yeah. which, you know, you said earlier about um, leading by example. Yeah. So. And he was very, very good at just not actually saying to me, this is how you should do it, but just showing me how I should do it. Right. Yeah. And I think that was his army training, basically. That's how he was taught to be a leader in the army. Excellent. Have you watched any films, read any books, read any blogs regarding uh, leading in any way, shape or form that you would recommend? And if nothing comes to mind, that's, that's absolutely fine. Bizarrely enough, actually, in, um, in a mili- the, military, the, the, the military films that I've watched in the past have had an influence on me, the way that, they've, the, way that the leaders within those... Now, they're idolised, obviously, and... Clearly, it didn't go smoothly, and, mm. as you know, as, as as heroically as it's portrayed. But I find that um, the, the 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 films about war and specific individuals within war are there's a there's a um, there's a, an old coward film called In Which We Serve, and he is a fabulous example in this, a fictional example of how to lead. Absolutely fantastic example. That will go in the resources for the, the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. Um, just a, a slight deviation. I, I'm i quite a big fan. So I, I read a lot of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, who I've mentioned in this uh, a, a few years ago, um, on investing in finance, but then mental models and decision-making tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and Charlie Munger in particular. And he, he said... And Warren Buffett said Charlie Munger had the fastest 30-second brain he'd ever met, oh. meaning he could go into a room and understand the situation quite really quickly. Fast, yeah. And when asked why, Charlie Munger said he he built a latticework of mental models. Um, so he would take all of the main concepts from, say, the hard sciences and, um, and the soft sciences and um, understand the main concepts. So, for example... Um, trade-offs, constraints in engineering, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They might borrow a couple of physics. You might uh, look at how catalysts work in chemistry and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, how how scale changes things in maths. And then also look at the human um, 
Oh, and also so business, so Porter's Five Forces, and Soft Matrix, that sort of thing. And he'd also look at the human biases, how we colour situations. That's yeah. the second thing. So how does this thing work mechanically almost? And then how am I colouring it? Yeah. And that's how he'd use this. And although they're models, so they're not quite, you know, true reflections of reality, it gave him a good way to understand things. Um, and that's a, a lot of me talking to say effectively, Have are there any models or tools or tips or tricks that you've used over the years to help you understand tough situations or to... If you're struggling to get your head around something, is there a particular routine or something you'd do to take a step back and see the bigger picture? Or um, I generally do a lot of background research. Before I go into anything that I think is going to be something I've not encountered before, I will do an awful lot of background research on it, which is one of the things that I love about the internet because that was quite difficult to do in the past. You have to go to a library and find books on things, and they weren't necessarily up to date either. Mm. But these days, you can research anything you like, and mm. I just love that, because you can then build up a bit of knowledge before you go, and you have a smattering of an understanding before you arrive, mm. and then you can start to see what this is that you're, you're having explained to you. Mm. Um, and I think the thing that I'm trying to get to, whenever I have any, any sort of situation like that, I'm looking for where's the opportunity, what's what's the end game here mm. and so I think you get to the end game quite quickly because that's what your target is so rather than spending a huge amount of time trying to understand absolutely every aspect of this you, you you're you're trying to get to to a certain extent very quickly where the opportunity is then you can work backwards from there sure. to say okay this is what I think the opportunity is how does that fit with what I've been told so understanding sort of true motives, incentives, etc., figuring yes. out where they actually want to get to yes. through the kerfuffle of things they're saying. Yeah, yeah. What's the end game here? And then working backwards. Yes, and then yeah. work backwards from there. Um, which and working backwards is a useful tool in yeah. navigating any situation. Exactly. Um, and I don't think you even realise. Well, I don't realise that that's what I do. But I, I do. I know that that's what I end up doing when I'm interviewing someone. Exactly the same thing. What What's your end game here? What is it that you want to achieve? Um, you know, and you, you, you get people come along for interviews sometimes. They don't want the job. And it becomes very, very um, clear very quickly that actually they don't want this job. Yeah. They've come along because they've had to come along for this interview or they've been pushed into it by an agency because the agency want them to do it. Or they feel it. compelled to or, through parents, yeah, family, partners. Yeah, absolutely. And so it, 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 if you're looking for that, that end result almost that they're trying to achieve or whatever this is that you're trying to achieve, you can go backwards from there. Very good advice. Let's cut out the crap, find out what you're really yeah, up what, to, what, you what, really what you really want, yeah, and yeah. then we can actually what do does something. What really do? <laughs> um, you, so you um, don't directly run Coratham now, no. do you? No. So you? And you have a number of other interests, uh, non-executive roles. Yes, I do. Um, yeah. You have an initiative with is it the Saudi Council? I've been part of international business councils probably for about 30 years mm. now. Um, and I sit on two particular ones now, the Saudi-British um, Joint Business Council and the UAE-UK Business Council. Mm. I do get involved in other sort of initiatives 
export initiatives. I used to be on the board of UKTI, mm. and so I get asked occasionally by the embassies or the team will come to me and say, do you want to get involved in this? Would you like to come and speak at that? So I'll, I'll do all sorts of things like that. And those, those initiatives are really interesting for me because they fulfill my um, desire to for the UK to do better in, the, in, in, in international trade. It's something that I've always been very... Um, aware of and something that I've always been interested in. Is that what? So is that what drives you to sit on those boards and do those things? It's partly that, yeah. Um, because I feel that it's necessary. Um, I also feel that you know, as an SME, you've got no place moaning about stuff if you're not prepared to do something about it. So if you can influence or you can make a difference, then you should try. Um, and, I, and the other thing is, is that it's very, very good networking and you meet some incredibly interesting people. So it, it expands the, the sectors that you, that you, of people that you talk to from completely different industries um, and people that, you know, politicians, um, people from all sorts of different backgrounds. So I find that really, really interesting. And the net non-executive roles and advisory roles you do, mm-hmm. my first question is, does it take a slightly different approach because you've spent a number of years being at the driving seat of something yep. and now you're advising the driver? Mm. So how do you tailor your approach? Uh, yeah, to that sort it, of it took me a long while, actually, with my first, my first role to, to really understand what my place was. And it does vary. Some of the companies that I'm involved with just need me to hold the CEO's hand from time to time, give a little bit of advice look after the committees, that type, the governance type bits. They don't really need me to do a great deal. And then other businesses, the smaller ones especially, I'm actively doing things with them and for them. I'm using my network to a certain extent, but I'm also helping them with specific things. For example, this Friday, I'm helping one of my CEOs do interviews for a financial controller. So that type of thing. So I'm not going to make the decision about who we're going to take on, but I've done the background work to get them where we are now. Yeah. We've got our shortlist to go, and I'm going to help him. Because it's a very small business, I'm going to help him do the interviews. Um, so some of it's quite hands-on, and then other times it's it's just governance. And um, I guess for any non-executives listening or, or aspiring non-executives, does the client often know what they want from you? when they come to speak to you initially? I don't think a lot of the time, especially with the small and medium-sized businesses, Mm. that they know what a med is for. Mm. They don't really understand what your role is. And one of the things that you need to do is explain to the the directors and the shareholders that you're not here to run the company because they quite often think that's what you're going to come and do. So you you do need to try and explain to them where you fit in. Um, And I don't think... A lot of them really know how to get the best value out of you. So you, that's down to you. You've got to drive your contribution because they're not necessarily going to know what it is you're able to do. Um, and it's a, it can be really, really interesting in small businesses especially because you can see where the opportunities are. You can see where the growth is going to be. And you can help them to get along with that. And sometimes all they need is someone to talk to. They just need a person to run things by because they're on their own and they don't have anyone to turn to to ask those questions. Yeah. And that what, what, what you just described there to me seems to me that to be effective as an ed, particularly in an SME, you need you need um, 
to be willing to give quite a bit of value at up front. Yes, um, you because you're doing research, you're yeah. figuring out how you can help, etc. Yeah, um, you're having to guide the the, the CEO and the board or, and the, the management team, etc., regarding what it is that actually mm-hmm. the net brings. Would Would you say that's fair? And would you say there are any other particular qualities that you need to bring to the table? You need to be very diplomatic, and you need to be able to keep the confidence of your CEO. Um, because if you fall out with them and or they ha- they lose confidence in you, you can't do it. You can't do the job. You've got to be able to, to get on with that person. So whenever I've taken on a role, I've always wanted to, to, to make sure that my my CEO or my MD is someone I can get on with. Um, the other thing, it's got to be interesting. You know, I can't just turn up and do a board meeting and go again. That's just so boring. You know, I want it to be interesting. And I've got to feel that I'm bringing value. I'm making a contribution. If I'm not making a contribution, I just don't want to be there. Yeah. It just doesn't work for me if I'm if I'm just turning up, you know, and then going away again. That's just really boring. Yeah. Which is, uh, I think it's important to note because you do get some, uh, we get some people that maybe want to become Ned's who just think it's about attending a board meeting, yes. sitting there, shuffling papers. And... Exactly, yeah. Well, I'm, three of my roles are as chair, and I do really enjoy those because I really enjoy um, the interaction you can get going with the, with the other the rest of the board. You can really turn it into a good team, and I do quite a lot of stuff with them to um, spark up a board meeting and make the board meeting strategic. You know, they, I don't want to sit there and... and rehearse the papers if you haven't read the papers you're, you're going to be in trouble you know you've got to read your papers and I just want questions I want clarifications I want ideas I don't want to sit here and listen to you reading out what you've written yeah. so there's that, that it's that type of thing and then you can take them off site and you can bring people into the board meeting yeah one of the things that seems to throw people is that I insist on a PDR for the chair and I, I have an annual effectiveness review with this whichever one of the board members wants to do it because I don't like doing it to be honest and they they all seem a bit shocked at that because apparently that's not something that the chair does very often so I understand right everybody I've ever talked to about it said oh I've never had to do that before so that's one of the things that I find really interesting and to anyone listening what does that look like well basically it's a it's very similar to just a a staff appraisal Mm. so there's a list of of things that I've got a sort of a bit of a template that I change around depending on what I'm doing with a particular company. And I give that out um, to all of the, the board members and the senior leadership team as well, if it's necessary. And that goes anonymously then to, to somebody in, in the business. They collate all of the answers. And then I sit with the CEO or the MD and we go over this. And I'm not really interested in them telling me that I'm good at this and I'm good at that. I want to know what I'm not doing. Mm. What are the things I've missed? Mm. Where am I letting them down? What things don't I do well? What do I need to work on? And I find that absolutely brilliant. It's really helpful. I'm going to borrow from uh, Charlie Munger again. He said, give me the pain because the good stuff takes care of itself. Yeah, yeah, you know, if if I'm good at something, it's nice to hear that I'm good at something. But what I want to know is how do I improve? You know, I don't want to stand still. So... But apparently, it's it's incredibly difficult thing to get people to do. They don't, right. they don't like doing it, and I don't know why. I don't really understand that. But it's got to be an ego thing again. When you've got to a certain level of seniority over a number of years, you don't want to be the person filling out 
Um, but you're the person that's doing this judgment on all of your board. Mm. You know, you're judging your board and their their fitness for purpose and whether or not they've got the skills and what do they need to do to improve their skills to make the board work better. So why was why it can't be one way. It's got to be two way. Absolutely. And on a slight tangent, a few years back, I used to do regional growth funding for SMEs. Oh, yes. And I've been in many a presentation where the uh, assessment team full of industry specialists, county county councillors, etc., were frantically looking through the notes because I hadn't spent any time. And it used to infuriate me that the the future of these companies were on the line for some of them. Yes. It's £300,000. That's the difference between them expanding or struggling to absolutely uh, struggling to stay afloat yeah and you have these people that haven't invested the time no they're just not bothered no. i used to sit on the lep the solar lep mm. and i was one of the investment panel um members and i used to do quite a lot of that and i used to love that job mm-hmm. because you get to read about people's businesses and you get to understand where they're going and you think oh yeah they could do that and then you get on the internet have a look at other things in that sector and you think oh i wonder if they thought about this and you wonder if you thought about that yeah really really interesting stuff and again my mentor um does that on the regional growth fund panel and his enthusiasm for it is infectious and he gets to see all these different things and um you know the quality of his questions are going to yeah. going to be high. I've sat in some of those meetings and the questions are pathetic, yes. frankly. Yes. And you think you're an embar- you're embarrassing, embarrassing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't you know you shouldn't be here and yeah. you've come in for a quick payday or something and it's not fair on everybody in the room. Don't get me started on <laughs> <laughs> public sector funding boards, oh, Jan. No. But um, well, I managed I managed three years at the LEP. And after a while, I just couldn't, I couldn't take any more. Mm. <laughs> it, was just, it was such hard work. Mm, absolutely. Bit of a segue um, into just some broad-based questions. Um, particularly considering you have an engineering uh, background and the company's in engineering, so you've probably dealt with apprenticeships in some way, shape or form, I would imagine. We've, we've done a few. Right. Yes, we've done a few. Um, or certainly you've had to consider... Um, uh, the education of your staff yes. or educating your staff on mm-hmm. the job. Do you, what, do you, what do you think about the current education system um, oh, in the UK? I, do you I think, think it's fit for purpose? And what do you think about the rise of personalised learning, say through online courses, YouTube, mm-hmm. so on and so forth? I, I, I'm i a little bit divorced from the education system now because my children are all grown up and stuff, so I don't really know how they function at the moment, I hear a lot of complaints from other people about the lack of education and the lack of basic education, not necessarily the sophisticated stuff, but, you know, the, the building blocks are missing mm. quite often. That's what I hear. I haven't actually experienced that myself. The people that we've taken on have been very, very good. Um, they've had the basics and they've been able to pick up what we've needed them to pick up very, very quickly. So... I, you know, I, I, my experience has been pretty good, to be honest. Okay. My issue is the careers advice. And I don't think it's changed an awful lot since my day. To so it's still uh, become a hairdresser until you yeah. get married, yeah. effectively. I, I, yeah. No, the, the, uh, it appears to me that the schools do not have and, and are not really interested in, in getting people to come in from industry to talk to People to those pupils about what the jobs are, mm. what jobs are available. They don't know what jobs are available. And so they aren't able to give proper careers advice. 
and there is a um, there is a reluctance to, to talk about engineering as a career. Mm. So they'll talk about the sciences, and they'll talk about research and laboratory work and that type of thing, but you don't get them talking about going into engineering as a as a trade, if you like, because vocational is the biggest problem in, in engineering, or mechanical engineering anyway, and pretty much most of the other disciplines. It's a real issue. And yet, if you give a child a few bits of paper and some some um, bits of stick and, you know, just sit them down on the floor, a small child will make something yeah. out of that. You give them a cardboard box and they'll, they'll make it into a car or whatever. So it's innate in children to be creative and to construct things when they've got materials around them. Um, it's funny you should say that because I actually work with a, a small gear manufacturing company and they use, they use apprentices. Um, but to find an apprentice that wants to move into gear manufacturing is now an impossible when they get in there and they start learning how yep. gears work, how the machines work, what they're making them for, marine arms, oil and gas, etc., it becomes fascinating to them. Yeah. They realise they have to apply a bit of mathematics as well, understand uh, gear ratios, etc. And all of a sudden, this whole world of engineering mm. uh, opens up to, to them. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that you say you don't think that the um, schools are doing enough to show what sort of careers are available, particularly out of outside of mainstream careers and I don't know, learning to code is probably yes. the, the thing yeah. that's, that's important um, on their agenda right now. Um, you've built a career, a, a big company, you've done a number of non, non-executive advisory roles. It's probably quite a high stress. I don't get stressed. First question, how do you handle stress? I don't get stressed. Why don't you get stressed relative to, say, somebody else that, that might? Is it just in... It's just, just in my nature. I'm, I'm, although I'm a very... Um, I'm, I'm quite a high octane person, I would guess. Mm. I don't. I, I do my best work when things are going horribly wrong. Okay. That's that's when I come up with my best ideas and I get things done when I'm up against it. Mm. Um, and I don't really. I get things that stress me out are being late. Mm. That stresses me out. I get really annoyed if I can't get somewhere on time. I hate being late. But apart from that, there's very little that really gives me serious stress. I'd say the only other thing that really gets to me is if I'm not well, I've got no patience for being ill, and so I just I just get bad tempered basically. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't be effective. Yeah, at... I love a problem. I love a problem. If things are going well, I'm the sort of person that will make make trouble because yeah. things are going smoothly. Okay, and um, is that is that with work or is that with everything? Everything. Do? Right. Yeah, if everything's going smoothly, I've got a most, got Make a problem. problem to deal with. So you're quite high octane in all areas of, of life, would you say? Or? Pretty much, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Uh, what do you do outside of work to switch your mind off of it? I like walking. Yeah, Walking's really good for me, um, and I just love being outside, um, bizarrely, because I've got an office job. Um, um, motorcycling, sailing, skiing, um, gardening, I love gardening. I collect books. Um, I don't do as much reading as I would like to. Well, you went through 600 at one point. So. Well, I've got a collection at home. I think my limit now um, is I'm not allowed to buy any more than another 200. And I've got probably getting on for 3,500 books now. Wow. But mean, I've been collecting them since I was little. It's going to say, Jen, I, I thought I read a lot. Um, <laughs> and I think I do, but 2,500 is... yeah. It's yeah. substantial. We, uh, my whole house is covered in bookshelves, basically. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I've got one more question for you, if that's okay, mm-hmm. um, or potentially two. If you could go back 20 years mm-hmm. and give yourself some advice, mm-hmm. 
or let's say 28 years, just before you started Corotherm. Um, and, and I guess this is advice for anybody listening now that's thinking of starting something. What advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? I think I would tell myself, and this is probably a little bit specific for me, I would tell myself to take more time over the planning. So I, I would plan better than I did. I, I do now, but I didn't then. Yeah. And I would tell myself to plan better and, and look forward better, take more time over it. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Jen. You're That's welcome. been a lovely podcast. Great. Thank thanks. you.